and, and Lord, as we study this particular passage today, I thank you for the Spirit of God, um, Lord, that helps us to understand um, the Spirit of God that seals us and holds our salvation, that you hold your, your, our salvation in your hands. And Lord, I just pray that you help us to glean something today uh, from your word to change us to be more like you again. And Lord, I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So starting in verse 7, he says, Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? Verse 9, If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such hope, such a hope, we are very bold. We're not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So he starts out calling the, the law... Um, the ministry that brought death, okay? Um, so the question I want to ask is, what is he referring to specifically when he says the ministry that brought death? Okay, the law. So say that again? Exactly, nobody could keep it. Uh, but there's also, he's, he's bringing into the picture Moses and the law of Moses, and the Ten Commandments. So the next line, he says, which were engraved in letters on stone. So he begins by differentiating and making sure that everybody understands that there's God's moral law, okay, and he's describing the Ten Commandments, and then there's still the Mosaic law, which is what would be considered the civil law. And so when we get to the end of the Old Testament or the beginning of the New Testament, there's 400 and some laws that have been continued to evolve and put on top of the Ten Commandments, which were God's original moral law. And so he makes the, the distinction here that we're looking at God's moral law. And so when Moses goes up there, we know the story. If you're familiar with the story, Moses goes up to get the Ten Commandments. And when he comes back down, the glory of the Lord is just radiating from him. And people are, they're like, whoa. And, and so he puts a veil over, and Paul is saying here 
that the glory of the Lord on Moses faded, but there is a, um, there's a, a Jewish tradition that holds to the fact, if you go back in the Old Testament, they never write, none of the writers ever say anything about the, the radiance of Moses fading. And, and so there are actually um, historical documents that look at Deuteronomy 34-7 when, um, and we'll read that passage in a little while, that says that, that when Moses died, they still hold to the tradition that Moses was still veiled because the radiance of Christ was still, or the radiance of the Lord was still coming from him. And so Paul is saying, no, 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 that, that didn't happen. The radiance of Moses faded. Why? Because the old covenant was intended to point to Jesus Christ and fade away and be replaced with the new covenant. So he's using this description to describe that. So if we go back to Genesis chapter 15, we'll go, we'll go back even farther than Moses and we go to Abraham. And just read real quickly a few verses. And the reason why I want to take you here is because we even see this is, this is a good 600 years before uh, Moses comes on the scene and the, and the things that are being described in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, um, 600 years plus before that. And we just read the first six verses or so. He says, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. He says, do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one that I, that, who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. So Abraham, this is the first time in, in, the, in the passage of Scripture that we see Abraham acknowledge the Lord as his master. So Adonai, sovereign Lord, Adonai Yahweh, he calls him. And this is the first time that he acknowledges this. But the actual covenant that God makes with Abraham and the promise that he makes with him happens several years. I believe it's about 15 years, if I'm not mistaken. I, I didn't research the number, but it's significantly earlier that, um, that the Lord comes to Abraham in uh, chapter 12, uh, yeah, even if we go back to chapter 13, it gives, it gives the earth, I'm, not, I'm sorry, chapter 11, in about verse 27, it gives the account of Terah's family, and this is Abraham, Abram's father. If we go down to 31, he says, Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot of Haran and his daughter-in-law Sarah, the wife of his son Abram, and together they sent out from Ur of the, of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. 
But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Okay, and this is after God gives Abram the instruction to go to Canaan, to go to the promised land. Um, and it's, it's Stephen in Acts chapter 7 that tells us that Abram stayed there until his father died. So God gives him the instruction to go um, to go to Canaan, and he goes to Haran. And then after his father dies, then he continues on, um, and he goes on down to Canaan. And then several years later, it's at that point that Abram says, Sovereign Lord. He's, he, at this point, he's going, yeah, okay, you're Lord. What you say is true, but you know what? I think I'm going to go this way with my dad first. You know, and so he's, he's working into his faith. And the reason why I bring that up is faith is always demonstrated in obedience. And we've talked about this in the past. Can you have faith and not, be, and not genuinely be saved? Um, we read in many of the Gospels where people had faith that God, that Jesus was everything that he said, but they couldn't bring themselves to the place to 100% fully follow when Jesus gave instructions. And so in the past few weeks, we've talked about John chapter 6, you know, where there were disciples that were following Jesus. And then when Jesus gives a difficult, very difficult teaching on laying down their own lives as a sacrifice and, and eating the flesh that Jesus eats and drinking the blood that Jesus drinks, of course, describing uh, living by the Spirit. Says all of his disciples, except for the 12, turned away. And, and he looks at his 12 and says, well, are you going to stay with me or are you leaving too? Uh, and, of course, they stay with him at that point. Um, and the description there is, is people can have faith that Jesus is who he says he is, that the Bible's true, um, but until it leads to actively stepping into roles um, that Jesus calls us into, you know, John tells us in 1 John chapter 2 and in 1 John chapter 4 that if we're not obeying his commandments, we need to examine our lives, you know, because it, it's a good possibility that we're not his. And so we, we're moving in that direction. And in 2 Corinthians uh, 3 again, in verse 7, the ministry that brought death, and he describes that, as the Ten Commandments, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory. And so the word transitory here, transitory though it was, means that it is not constant. It transitions, it changes, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not a steady, um, permanent uh, picture there it's just a picture of something that's going to happen in the future so if we look at Romans 4 and we'll begin reading in verse 13 Paul's describing to the Romans here as well he says it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. <clears throat> and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only those who are of the law, but also those who have the faith of Abraham. 
He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is, our, <clears throat> he is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead, <clears throat> yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he promised. That is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him and who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justifications. So you don't have to turn back there, but in, in Genesis uh, 12, it tell, the, the Bible tells us that Abram was about 75 years old when God called him. And here in Romans, he's describing that when it was credited to him to right, as righteousness, he was about 100. So for 25 years, <clears throat> Moses had faith and God in his foreknowledge saw that he was going to fully surrender and give God sovereignty over his life. So he continued to work and continued to work and continued to work. But it took 25 years for Abram to step into that role to finally, he says, to where he says, Sovereign Lord. And what the scripture tells us is that it's at that point that God, that God says, now you're mine. From 25 years. Okay, that's from what Genesis tells us uh, from the time uh, that he was called to go to um, Canaan until the point where, you know, he's having this conversation about um, being credited or God giving him credit to, to righteousness. And so the writers, like I said before, um, this, this faith is demonstrated in obedience and this is enforced long before the law of Moses even comes on the scene. Um, it's a minimum of 600 years. I don't have the exact numbers. I calculated approximately 625 years um, that it was from the time that, that this trans transition takes place in Abram to the time that Moses goes up on the mountain and receives the, the, um, the Ten Commandments. So the writers of the Old Testament, they never mention that the glory that shone from Moses' face had faded. In fact, uh, like I said, in, De in Deuteronomy 34.7, if we turn there, the fifth book from the beginning of the Bible, the last chapter of Deuteronomy, chapter 34, And this gives us the age of Moses. It says, Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. Now, I look at that and say he was still pretty, a, a pretty healthy man, um, but there are, there are um, 
Jewish traditions and Jewish histor- historians that say that this verse means that the glory of the Lord was still shining from him, was still radiating from him. Uh, and so I don't know, I'm not, I'm not 100% dogmatic that, that that's not true or that it is, but what I do believe is that what Paul is telling us in 2 Corinthians is that the glory did fade. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's likely that at this point, Joshua is writing here and he's describing in verse 30, or I'm sorry, in verse 10, he says, since then no prophet has ever risen, has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all the signs and wonders that the Lord had sent him to do in Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land, for no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all of Israel. Um, if there's no other prophet like Moses in all of Israel, and the Israelites still grumbled in the wilderness and still didn't believe, and um, it, <laughs> that's just kind of a concept that's difficult for me to really grasp. But at the same time, I think to myself, I'm glad I didn't live back then because I'm fairly certain that I would be more like the grumblers than I would be like Caleb or Joshua, (laughs) you know. Um, So uh, I I look at that and I say, boy, there's a lot of grace and there's a lot of mercy in that, you know. So uh, even as, as horrible as culture and society is today, I still look and say, Lord, I thank you that you've placed me here because this is the best opportunity for me to hear the gospel um, and to see your work involved in people's lives. And so, anyway, um, yeah. Yes. Right. Right. And so there has to be a differentiation there as well um, because God gave Moses the, the, the law, the, the moral law. Um, and, and I believe that's what Jesus is referring to. I'm certain that th- that's what he's referring to, um, that he gave Moses the, mor- the, the moral law that they were to abide by. And so that if, you, if, if the Pharisees want to hold to that, you know, Jesus is course accurately describing that's what you're going to be judged by and you will fail you know, you know every person has failed in that uh in that element so it's a good point thank you so the old covenant ministry that brought death to people um it wasn't the fault of moses or the law which is holy righteous and good but it was the fault of of human sin and paul even calls the moral law holy, righteous, and good in Romans chapter 7. If we take a look at that real quick. There's a couple places we'll look at where he describes it that way. Uh, Romans 7, and we'll read verses 7 through 12. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would have not known what sin had, what sin was, had it not been for the law. For I would have not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, 
seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive from the law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. So what he's, if you kind of reverse that or, or read it backwards, the law is good, what does that make me? All my righteousness are as filthy rags, it says, I think, in Isaiah. Um, so Paul, you know, and I, I love the picture of, of a parent child, uh, you know, like a young child. So when we're watching Isabella run around, you know, it's pretty neat to, it's neat to watch um, how parent to child respond to each other. Does Isabella know that touching the stove is bad? If the stove's not on, imagine the stove isn't on, there's nothing, is it bad? Does she know that? She doesn't know that it's bad. What has to happen for her to, well, she might now, you know, she may, she may have, but, but, you know, so how does Isabella know that touching the stove is bad? Okay, before that, mom and dad telling her, don't do that. So just like Eve in the garden and Adam in the garden, when God says, don't touch this, why not? Okay, <laughs> we all have done that at some point in life. And so the purpose is for mom and dad's desire to protect Isabella from getting hurt later, they put rules in place and they say, you know what, don't touch that. Why? Isabella thinks mom and dad don't like me. This is what I want to do. And Paul's saying, Paul's saying in Romans 7, he's going, this is what I want to do. The law comes in place and says, don't do that. Huh. Why not? I want to. Now there's an understanding of what sin is because of the law. And so, um, excuse me? Right, you know, and Jesus says, says that, uh, but Paul is, is the one that he's describing. I love the way he puts it because it's, as he's evangelizing, look at verse 11 and, and 12. He doesn't point the finger at them. He says, for sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived who? Me. So he puts himself in the same category as everybody that he's teaching. And, and then he goes on to say again in the next line, and, and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And, he, and he's describing himself as unholy, unrighteous, and not good until he allows Jesus to change him uh, on the inside. So if we look at 1 Timothy as well, First Timothy chapter 1, and we'll read verses 8 through 11. He says, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. 
We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and the rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the, the sexually immoral, for those who practice homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. So the things that he's describing here, there's sometimes that, that I, can, I can look at those and say, majority of these, except for one, I've not struggled with, but there's one that I kind of, you know, I continue to go back to, or there's one that I continue to struggle with. Peter writes that if we offend the law in one point, we're guilty of the whole thing. That means if there's one of these, if, if I look at this and say, I do very well with all of these except for one. When we wrote, read Romans 3.23, we fall short of the glory of God. We miss the mark because we've all sinned. And that's one person's, or that's one sin. That's all it takes to separate us from Christ. And so, he gives the, uh, the solution to that for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine. Later in Timothy, he says, watch your life and your doctrine closely because if you do that, then you save yourself and those around you and those that you, that you share with. And so the warning that's there is, is very, um, very strong. The law, look at, look at the law, use it properly and understand that when the law is broken, Grace is dispensed then through repentance and continued obedience from that point forward. And so that's, that's the, the real essence of the message that he's given. I'm sure that I know that you guys have heard this before. Um, but if, if we go back to 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 3, what he's describing here, um, starting in verse 9, the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious. How much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. Um, when, he, when he mentions surpassing glory, obviously he's talking about the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection, resurrected Christ living in and through us. And we continue on. For, the, for what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. Um. And, and, I, and as I'm reading that, I'm going, okay, how does that come full circle for us today? Um, what does that picture look like uh, in, our, in our community today? I could probably go around the room and, and probably all of us could name uh, at least one or even a few people who obey the civil law to a point where people look at them and go, wow, you know, that person, those people, they're just good people. They're just really good. They don't ever break the law. They're always being generous. They're doing good things and things like that. <clears throat> but there's no evidence of Jesus Christ in their life. How hard is it to approach that person and share the gospel message? It's very hard. Why is it so hard? And that's, that's my next question. That's, that's not a... That's not an answer, that one that I have a question or an answer to, but I look at it and I go, why is that, why is it so hard for me to, to walk up to someone who everybody around thinks is, 
is a pretty good person and, and give the gospel message to them and say, hey, you know, you need Jesus in your life because you and I are, are just as bad as what we, a person that we would consider the most immoral person on the earth. Paul does that when he's talking to the Romans. He says, you know, he, we just read, the law says, I'm a bad person. Not you all or this person. He's, the law told me I'm a bad person. And so um, <clears throat> the presentation of the gospel, it, it, becomes, it becomes blurry when a, a bunch of people are good people and doing good things. And there's not a distinction between those who are following Christ and who are giving Christ the glory. You know, and I look at the Christmas time that we're approaching now. You know, there's a lot of good organizations out there and things like that who are giving and they're doing things uh, for other people. But <clears throat> if you ask people on the street today, what does Christmas mean? What kind of answers do you get? Right. And even, even then... Um, you know, you, you mentioned the numbers like one out of 20. Um, I would be willing to bet that one out of 20 that you talk to even have an understanding that it was Christ's birth. You know, that was, that were the purpose of Christmas being established was to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. Um, there's a Christmas, well, I don't know if it's a Christmas song or not, but there's, there was a song written years ago, several years ago, um, that's played a lot at Christmas, and the song is called We Are the Reason. And the verse to the song says, As little children, we would dream of Christmas morning, of all the gifts and toys that we knew that we'd find, but we never realized a baby born that blessed night gave us the greatest gift of our lives. And then the chorus of the song says, We were the reason that he gave his life. So if you don't take the, the manger to the cross, the message is incomplete. If you don't take it from the cross to the resurrection, the message is incomplete. And if you don't take it from the resurrection to the return of Christ and the coming wrath and the coming, uh, the coming also of those who are obedient to the, to the word, um, to be meeting and being with him in the kingdom, the message is incomplete. And so that's, I'm, I'm the one that's most guilty of that. Uh, I've fallen short of that message so many times, you know, and so that's that's what he's bringing here um, in verse 13 of 2 Corinthians 3. He says, we're not like Moses who put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away, but their minds were made dull for this day. The same veil remains when the old covenant is read. Say that again. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, and I agree. My heart, my heart this weekend have, has been so burdened for a couple of my family members. Um, and, I, and I had a, a conversation with one of them yesterday. And, and the focus of our conversation um, was just, with this other person in my family, they were just saying, yeah, but it's just faith. Grace comes through faith. 
And it's all about faith, so you don't really have to repent. And I'm going, then what do you do with the Great Commission? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's all right there. I, I, you know, and that's in my mind, I'm going, what did God command the disciples to do? He said, go, teach all nations, baptizing, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I command you. And I said, if you just take that verse, I said, that's a pretty simple verse to understand. It's not always a simple verse to follow because sometimes decisions are, become difficult. There's pressures. There are, there's difficulties that come into play, you know. Um, and, and we see that in the disciples' lives just before that when, when Jesus looks at the disciples and says, you're all going to abandon me uh, just a few days before. And Peter stands up and I, I'm a little bit like Peter. I got a big mouth and I'll say, not me. I'm never going to do that. And Jesus looks at him and says, you're going to deny me before tomorrow morning three times. And uh, go ahead, read it. Right. I, I thought I said that, but maybe I missed it. But yeah, that's, that's the essence of the, that's the essence of the passage. Teach them to obey everything that I command you. And so um, if you get back into 2 Corinthians 3, in verse 16, he, he doesn't say the word repentance, but he describes it. Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So, the, mm -hmm. yeah, and so I forget where the passage is, but Paul describes that there's pleasure in sin for a while. And you know, is sin, and like you just said in Romans 7, sin afforded the opportunity, seizes, it, it just takes over. Um, and, and we naturally think there's, there's times, you know, that we may think, well, I deserve this. I deserve a little bit of pleasure in my life. I deserve, you know, to, uh, it, whatever it may be. For some people, it's, it's possessions. For some people, it's physical uh, relationship with you know, with people and things like that. Um, there are so many different things, but what we were reading in First in Timothy 1 just a little while ago, uh, it's easy to read through that, th through that, and we say, well, I'm not having an affair. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. But when Jesus gives us the instructions and the Beatitudes and some of the other passages throughout the Gospels, he says, the law says don't commit adultery, but I tell you, if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery with her already. So how many times do we sit down, you know, I, I'm speaking primarily to the guys here, that we may sit down in front of a TV program that has kind of provocatively, and one thing that sometimes I struggle with watching it is, I'm not picking on sports, but sometimes it's hard to watch a sports event because in the commercials and in this, there are things in there that are appealing to the eyes for men. Yeah, exactly. Thank God for TiVo, right? Right. And have both, you know, both sides, both the 
Right. And that's, that's important to recognize, too, because in Hebrews 5, the last verse in Hebrews 5, when he's describing uh, the warnings against falling away, he says, but solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So there's only one way to determine, first of all, to distinguish good from evil, but at the same time, there's only one way to see our lives from Christ's perspective. And so, A, yes, we are sinners where all of our righteousness are as filthy rags. But second, that Jesus loved us so much that he places so much intrinsic value on every life that he created that he gave his own life for us. And to understand that all, you know, and I've mistakenly many, many times said, all you have to do is receive Jesus into your heart. The Bible doesn't say that. God says, I offer this to you if you're willing to follow me and obey me. And so it's, it's not a inviting Jesus into my life, but it's exchanging my life for his and, and allowing him to, um, to be sovereign in my life. So, back in Second uh, Corinthians 3, um, we just read verse 16. When anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So turning to the Lord requires turning from sin. Uh, we read that in Romans uh, 16 as well. In verse 17 and 18, he says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Um, and of course, we know that the freedom that's being described there is the freedom from the penalty of sin through obedience. And so, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. So if we turn back to Romans 10, kurios, yes, yes. And it means the same thing as in the Hebrew, Adonai. So when, when you see Abraham or Abram say, Sovereign Lord, Adonai Yahweh, Kyrios is the Greek uh, translation for that same. Uh, I'm sorry, I said Romans 10, I meant Romans 8. Excuse me. So if you read, um, now let's start in verse 26. He says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So in other words, if our prayer is already in accordance with God's will, our prayer is going to be answered because it's already God's will to do the things that we're asking for. And so that was, the, that was one thing that was difficult for me to understand early on uh, in my Christian walk. I was like, well, if I ask anything according to his will, that means I can ask anything. And if I really, really think that he wants to give it to me, uh, then he will. Well, that's not what it's saying. Um, He's saying if it's already according to his will, that's what his will already is. 100% of the time he will answer. And if it's not according to the will, his will, 100% of the time the answer would be no or he would not be, give you an answer or it would be wait, uh, not yet. 
So anyway, in verse 28, he says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. So that word glorified there is not referring to glorified here on the earth, but he is saying that it's as good as done. You can, you can say it as though it has already happened, even though it hasn't moved in that direction yet. So in 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, I keep going to 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians um, 3, the last, excuse me? Right, right. And so as obedience continues to happen and as the transformation into the image of Jesus Christ continues to happen and move forward, <clears throat> the glorification is is set it's going to happen um, and there's nothing that can change that yeah it sounds like right right and that used to confuse me a lot too is you know is uh <laughs> yeah so it it was it's easy to confuse that with okay god created us with some to have this destiny and some to have that destiny and and he sets people in that position which you have to include he foreknew the choices that we were going to make he knew ahead of time the choices and decisions we were going to make and so the destiny is already set if you follow me glory is your destiny if you don't follow me hell is your home Yeah, things done in the body. Right. So that's, that's a description of people who have already given their life to Christ and they've been, they've been raptured. And this is taking place during the tribulation um, that we're learning about during the message. The Christians, the followers of Christ, are in heaven. And if you continue on in that passage, it says the deeds that we've done will be tested with fire. And he said, you know, and it describes how most of what we did will be burned up and consumed and it'll be gone and you'll, and you'll be just left with just a little pile of precious stones of things that we did for Christ. You know, and, and as I kind of examine my own life, I realize that there's more and more things. Wow, this is going to burn. This is going to burn. This is going to burn. <laughs> you know? Right. 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 Put it into practice, yes. Right. Yes. Well, yeah, and, and that, that was probably a poor picture. I mean, I, I'm giving you a picture of after everything that we've done is, is, is purified with the fire. You know, I'm not, I'm not the one holding it. Jesus is actually the one holding it, you know. Um, but 
when you read the passage of Scripture that says in Hebrews, fixing our eyes on Jesus, who's the author and the finisher, the perfecter of our faith. Uh, we read that passage and all of a sudden I begin to realize how many times do I start looking at the circumstances around me and make decisions based on that. And, and I have to continue to remind myself, go back to what Nehemiah did. He was in that conversation before the king and, and just stop mid-sentence and go, Lord, show me what you want. And fix my eyes back on Jesus and not on the circumstances. And then it makes it easy to say, Lord, I'm going to follow you instead of what I want. And I'll tell you what, the devil attacked I, I, well, maybe not the devil. It could have been like, it's my flesh and things like that. But this week, there were times <coughs> when I wanted to just snap at people. You know, there were times when I wanted to go back to some things in my old life that I used to participate in that I at one time found pleasure in. And, and, and there, I mean, it came to a point where I, I just, I had to drop to the floor and say, Lord, I don't want to hurt you again. And all of a sudden, scriptures start coming to my mind and it was like okay now you're learning something you know and that doesn't mean that I was you know perfect in any way or anything like that but there are I, and I'm sure you've probably experienced the same thing where you've had a temptation that's come at you and and you and you sit there and you go why why do I struggle with this why do I struggle with this and then all of a sudden Jesus says look at me look at my words look at what I did for you Look at how much I love you. And then all of a sudden, wow. <laughs> I mean, because it was almost instant that as soon as those passages of Scripture came to mind and, and I cried out to God this week and said, Lord, I don't want to do these things. I don't want to struggle with this. It was like, boom. All right, get up. <laughs> you know? And it was like, all right, I can move forward now. <laughs> you know? Yes. Yes. I mean, you can get distracted so easily, and then you have to ask right. yourself, is this what God wants? Am I following God? Is He Lord over this situation? Yeah. Ask Him that. Yeah. Am I doing what He yeah, we went. Yeah, we went through that in 1 Corinthians, I think. I think it is in 1 Corinthians. No. Uh, I, can, I can say the verses, but, uh, oh, here it is, 2 Corinthians 10. Verses 3 through 5, for we, though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds, not addictions, strongholds, things that we give permission to invade our lives. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we'll be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. And so, yeah, do we have to bring every thought that comes into our mind, every temptation that we face, every struggle, uh, every stronghold that we deal with, when it, every decision we make. And if we do that, life becomes so much easier when it comes to walking with the Lord and, and staying away from sin and, and temptation. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't say that to say addictions don't exist, but for the, for the follower of Christ, the true follower of Christ, Jesus says there are no addictions. There are strongholds that you give permission to invade your life. Uh, 